0: For me, the job feels like a privilege every day. I get to interact with really, really smart people and learn all of the time.
1: You are listening to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur, a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas, venture capital investors, and other early believers tell you relatable insightful and authentic stories to help you realize your vision welcome to the sure shot entrepreneur i'm with sam toole principal at primary venture partners based in new york he's going to talk to us about how he makes investment decisions what kind of startups he likes to invest in how he engages with founders and what are some specific things in the areas that he focuses on mainly healthcare sam welcome to the sure shot entrepreneur
0: Thanks, Gopi. Really appreciate it. I'm excited to get the chance to chat.
1: Let's start with your story, where you grew up. You grew up in Nantucket, right? Yeah. Small island
0: off of Massachusetts, which most people know as a vacation destination, but was born and raised there and lived there all the way through high school. It's actually where I started my entrepreneurial journey. Back in high school, I used to landscape and I also was a big surfer. I am a big surfer. So ended up starting my first business when I was 18, which was a surf school. For about five years, so instead of doing internships during college or anything like that, I'd go back to Nantucket every summer and teach surf lessons. Surf school still there, but it was my first foray into the world of, of entrepreneurship. During that time, I ended up starting a second business, which was an e-commerce company, sort of spun it out of the surf school. I used to go around and sell t-shirts out of my backpack to college kids and ended up raising some money and running an e-commerce company for a handful of years in college and out of school as well. That was totally different than running a surf school, but learned a lot of good things about how to run businesses, probably more about what not to do. had some co-founder issues, ended up shutting down the e-commerce company. Long story short, the great guy to start a surf school with wasn't the right partner to start a second business with on the e-commerce side of that business. I was living in Boston at the time, really had no idea what I wanted to do. I was sort of lost because these businesses have been my whole life for many years and ended up getting really interested in tech and landed at a software consultancy on the sales and go to market side and worked there for a handful of years. We were building custom mobile software for sort of Series A and Series B businesses and the Fortune 2000 companies. I was there for a couple of years up until that business got acquired by Accenture. I ended up leaving before that to move to New York to be the first salesperson at a business called Nomad Health, which is healthcare labor marketplace, which was my first real deep exposure to healthcare. They eventually became the director of sales, selling into health systems and provider groups across the country. And then shifted over to be the GM of the business line. It was there about four years from seed through Series B before jumping over to the investing side. So about 10 years of entrepreneur and operator experience before coming over to investing at primary, where we do pre-seed and seed stage investing in New York. I spend 75% of my time in the world of healthcare and the rest of it in sort of enterprise enterprise SaaS. We are a geographically focused fund. 95% of our investments are in the greater New York area. And the two founding GPs are primary... Seven years ago, when the fund was started, said, we think New York's going to be the tech hub of the East Coast. But at the time, there wasn't a lot of venture dollars in the New York ecosystem. So we're going to be able to fund that's focused on supporting that ecosystem. And on top of that geographic focus, we work really closely with the portfolio, which is something that's always spoke to me, given my previous background. We're a team of 30 people. We have nine full-time investors, but then the rest of the team is really focused on working with the portfolio. We have operating partners who focus on go-to-market talent and people and strategic finance, and they have teams that sit underneath them.
1: So you're a surfer turned entrepreneur turned healthcare executive turned venture capital investor.
0: Yeah, it's a winding path for sure. I definitely didn't take the I'm going to go get an internship and do investment banking and get an MBA and work at a tech company and then become a VC. It's a little bit different.
1: What do you like about venture capital?
0: For me... The job feels like a privilege every day. I get to interact with really smart people and learn all of the time, whether it's about different industries or different parts of industries. I come into the mic every day and get like, I'm going to learn something new and interact with people who are so smart and are focused on and spending their whole time changing the world for the better. I absolutely love all my time on the operating side, but it's just different from a day to day basis in terms of this really feeling like a privilege at all
1: times. Yeah, it is a privilege indeed to work with some ambitious entrepreneurs building mission-driven businesses. It's truly an honor to have those opportunities.
0: Yeah, it's just so much
1: fun. Yeah, it is a lot of fun. What areas do you focus on for your investments?
0: I spend about 75% of my time in healthcare investing specifically. Healthcare is so big. I could be looking at an insurance business. I could be looking at a fintech business, infrastructure business, or spend my time looking at that world in particular, both on the enterprise and on the consumer side. And the rest of my time is a mix of enterprise software, generally application layer software, fintech, prop tech. I'm a little bit of a sucker for vertical market SaaS businesses and, and sleepy industries as well. But increasingly, healthcare, healthcare, healthcare.
1: How is it different to build a startup in healthcare today compared to other sectors what do entrepreneurs need to do different
0: healthcare today is at a really interesting moment look back to 10 years ago there were a bunch of regulatory changes around affordable care act and then the implementation of ehrs pushed the world of healthcare more into at least having the infrastructure to start to at least build that data and change care models to really focus on the patient a little bit more and really change the incentive structures. I like to think about healthcare today, like fintech, probably five or seven years ago, you have a bunch of really large digital health businesses that if you're an entrepreneur today, you don't only have to sell into a health system, which is going to be a long, difficult sales cycle. It's what fintech, Businesses had to do five or seven years ago. They had to sell into big banks. But now they can go and sell into Brex. And if you're a healthcare business today, you can go in and sell into Oscar or you can sell into Hinge or you can sell into Cedar, whoever it might be. So when you look at the infrastructure that has started to get laid to regulatory changes, and then you layer on COVID, which just accelerated everything and made people even more aware of how broken the healthcare system is, it enabled people, patients who are really consumers at the end of the day, to realize that. They should have a better experience. When we talk to early stage entrepreneurs in the world, people who are like leaning into those tailwinds and have spent a lot of time thinking about it get us really excited. Also, traditionally, healthcare investors would have said, you need to have a healthcare background to go out and start a business because you have to go in and sell really big health systems and it's going to be hard. I don't think that's necessarily true anymore today. People who come from a great consumer background can go in and build an amazing healthcare business who three or four years ago, they might not have been able to.
1: That's very interesting. I would expect that for an entrepreneur to be successful, deep domain expertise and many years of experience and established network of various entities within healthcare would be important. But you're saying that actually that's not important. The entrepreneur could come from e-commerce or some other completely different sector unrelated to healthcare. And there are plenty of opportunities for entrepreneurs to build healthcare solutions, even if they don't have that domain expertise.
0: Yeah, we certainly look at a lot of businesses where it is really important because of a specific domain expertise that someone has. We recently invested in a business that is in the provider network space. So it's a guy who came out of Oscar, who for four years had built their networks. And he said, I don't have the software tools to do this it's a pretty specific problem. The average Joe Schmo walking up the street isn't gonna realize that there's an opportunity there. So in some cases, especially on the enterprise side, we see a lot of people who are coming out of health tech businesses who have seen from the inside how broken these systems are and are saying, I'm gonna go out and improve that. With some of the businesses on the care side in particular, though, having that specific healthcare background, isn't necessarily a must. I think it's really important to have people around you who are, but if you're building a business that has a direct-to-consumer motion, maybe it's around care, but like you have ran acquisition and growth, that's great. If you ran growth or acquisition at a D to C brand, you can go in and really understand as a patient or as a consumer where there are specific new opportunities and like you don't need to have that healthcare background necessarily.
1: Thanks for sharing that fresh perspective. Often we think that past experience in certain areas are important, but what you're saying is fresh thinking, creative ideas are much more valuable. There are enough experts out there that can support the business, but that entrepreneurial spirit is what's more important today.
0: Sometimes entrepreneurs will take the, and it's driven by the market, the approach of saying I'm going to make an incremental improvement. I'm going to make something a little bit better.
1: And Yeah, that's what happens with experts. They're very good at finding incremental changes, but when looking for revolutionary changes, they struggle because they see so many different ways And new idea can fail, and that prevents them from taking that leap.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I think we always get excited about people who are going to really take a step back and say, I'm changing the world here. We're investors in a business called K-Health. Alon, the CEO, is the co-founder of Wix, and then the co-founder of Room. So building websites, then selling cars online, and now he's running a business called K Health, which is revolutionizing how people get access to care. And it's the idea of saying, you basically are gonna be able to, through AI, have a doctor in your pocket at all times. When you talk to him about it, he doesn't come from that world of healthcare necessarily. It doesn't make sense the way that care is delivered today in the United States. Let's really revolutionize how consumers are getting access to that care versus being stuck in the box of this is how it's been done for the last 10 years.
1: That's fascinating. I want to talk about the first meeting, the second meeting when you meet entrepreneurs. What goes on in that room? What do you ask them? What are you looking for? Yeah, we're
0: early stage investors. For us, first and foremost, it's about the team. It's about understanding their story, their background, what is their unique insight to build this business. We also think a lot about, we use this term internally, rate of learning. Are these people learning machines? Are they going to come in and iterate and be able to weave back and forth? Do you know that a startup is not one straight path? So we really look to try to get to know the people first and foremost. We're also looking at TAM and market, of course, and ultimately the solution that they're building to help solve the core problem that they are going
1: after. You look for who they are, so you ask a lot of questions about their personality, past experience, career, and you're watching very closely to see if they're learning machines. Are they eager to grasp new ideas and chase after new innovation? And you're looking for the normal things that all other investors would look for, size of the market, unit economics, whether the solution is differentiated and who's the competition and all of that stuff. Yeah, exactly. Can you give an example of one of the recent investments? How was the conversation? How did you meet the entrepreneur? What did you ask them?
0: A recent investment we made is in a business called Jukebox Health, which is helping seniors age in place. It's three multi-time entrepreneurs focused on helping seniors make sure that they have their homes set up and retrofitted so they don't have to leave their homes and they can say, we're going to be here and I'll live the rest of life here. It's a full stack solution for one of these businesses that is operationally complex, but when they figure out how to scale, it's also a huge moat. And they're going in and having conversations with payers and health systems who are all incentivized to help members age more safely. For us in those early conversations, it was really focused on getting to know the 3 team members, Ramanos, Oren, and, and Sung, who had all started different businesses beforehand. But this is actually an example where not all of them were from the healthcare world directly, or they hadn't all spent that time there, and trying to get a sense of what's ultimately driving them and how much do they want to solve this problem. These guys are pros who really have been thoughtful around what do they need to go prove and what's going to be hard. You sometimes see this with people who have been around the block once or twice, but like just being honest about what they knew and what they don't know yet. Sometimes you see with people who are, maybe this is their first business, the desire to act like they know everything. From my perspective, I love it. And I find it really refreshing when people say, it's a great question. I don't have the answer to that right now. Just being forthright about that.
1: Yeah, some of the best entrepreneurs I've worked with, they're incredibly impatient. They just want to do things and they are so eager to make decisions, take actions. But at the same time, they're also very thoughtful. They have thought about a topic very deeply, much more deeply than anyone around them. And they have considered different scenarios. Therefore, now they know exactly what to do and Mm -hmm. they're able to move forward. It's a privilege to have that opportunity to watch that action.
0: Yeah, we actually have a CEO in our portfolio, a guy named Tony Aloko, who is CEO of a business called Dandy. He's talked about impatience with the whole investment team beforehand. Even as he's interviewing people, he tries to figure that out. he's basically said, the best way to do it is, I just asked straight up. He said, when was the last time that like, you didn't get something finished as quickly as you wanted to. Or that some you know, someone got in your way. Like, what was that? He said he used to try to like weave around just asking, when was the last time you were impatient is the best way to really quickly understand mm-hmm. and get to that? It's a race against the clock in a lot of ways. Finding product market fit, going on to raise more capital and doing all of that extra months can mean a lot.
1: This is very interesting. You're giving specific examples of what happened in in a closed room when the conversation between you and the founders I always ask this question to pre-partner level venture capital investors. Do entrepreneurs insist on talking to partners? What role do you play in that conversation? How do you support them and how do you support the firm?
0: That's a good question. We actually think a lot about it given the size of our fund. What is the entrepreneur's experience in this? Because you want to make it a great experience. They're the customers in a lot of ways. As a firm, what we've tried to do is be really thoughtful around making sure we all are aligned around like, what is going to get us excited? Like and that gets back to people and it gets back to market and doing these types of things. And then we try to bring in people on the partner level as early as possible. The plus is as you have someone on a non-partner level having some of those early conversations, what we really strive for is that that partner is going into that conversation really well prepared. They've been debriefed. They have an understanding of the market the understanding of the product, they're going into it with a prepared mind versus that just initial conversation. And as generalists, we look at so many different sectors. You just look at our portfolio. The businesses span from full-stack autonomous submarine businesses to D2C brands and everything in between. We can't be experts on everything, but we really try to make sure that if you're having a conversation with a non-partner, they're making sure that that partner is super prepared going into that second or third conversation.
1: What are some common mistakes that founders do, especially when engaging with pre-partner level investors? And what advice would you give them?
0: Common mistakes I think that people sometimes make is, and it's a hard thing to critique, but it's around how do people pitch the narrative? As VCs, we look at tens or hundreds of businesses in a week or in a month, certainly, and really working to make that story compact and digestible. I know when we work with our portfolio around subsequent fundraising rounds, which we get really closely involved with, we spend a lot of time with them saying like, what is that story? What is that narrative? How do you make it really simple for someone to understand the core part of the business, why this is really exciting and demonstrate you understand what those different levers are around that success? At times, especially in industries where things are a little bit more complex out of the gates, I always encourage entrepreneurs to take a step back and think through what's that elevator pitch? You're going to start off, tell people up front so someone can walk out of that meeting and say, oh my God, this is why it's so exciting because someone has to go get someone else excited. The easier you can make that for someone else, that is always a win.
1: Yeah, the principals and the senior associates and others at the firm, they very quickly turn into champions for the entrepreneurs. And they have a much closer relationship with the partner so they can bring up topics relevant at the right time to influence the partner and make them look at this opportunity for what it's worth. Eventually, the principal or the senior associate becomes a friend of the entrepreneur more closely than the partner himself or herself. It's especially
0: important these days as well, where the volume of deals that people are looking at and the pacing is just so quickly, it's so fast. Most of the deals that we look at from first meeting to a term sheet, it's like one to two weeks. It's not that we wouldn't like to have more time, but given how fundraising processes are run today, it's just really quick. So you have to be able to make it like, why is it exciting? And then in, in worlds where it is complex, something that I always appreciate is help me get smarter quickly. What, what are the additional things I should be reading? What are the additional materials we do with all of our portfolio when they're going on fundraising? We say, you don't go out and fundraise until you put together the FAQ document. That's just going to help that investor get that much smarter, that much more quickly. Those little things are super valuable.
1: Yeah. Entrepreneurs who help those ambassadors and internal champions by educating them on what the business is about succeed much more effectively in the fundraising process. So it's uh, I'm glad that you highlighted that. Yeah, You've been in venture capital for almost two years now. If you were to change one thing to make this industry better, what would you do?
0: I think access continues to be a real problem. There are a subset of people who are always going to be able to get in and Get in front of of VCs, figuring out ways to ensure that every entrepreneur, um, regardless of their background, have access to ultimately a growing pool of capital is super important. We've thought about that a, a fair amount here at Primary and have actually gone in and invested our time and dollars. We run a founder fellowship program for first time entrepreneurs and getting them access and resources to people that they might not traditionally have. We also have a New York City tech guide that we've put together, which is all around saying, if you've never been in this world beforehand, these are the people you should be talking to. This is how you should be thinking about this. Everything from whether it's the lawyers to the banks to the different VCs to how you're thinking about pitching. So we've tried to make little steps into doing that, but I still think there's a lot of room for improvement. Unfortunately, I don't have all the solutions in terms of how to fix that.
1: Yeah, access is quite challenging. It's a lot easier than it was 10, 15 years ago, but there are still siloed avenues for relationships and it's quite hard, quite challenging for new entrepreneurs to navigate the maze. I hope we can make that simpler and invite more diversity among entrepreneurs. I want to switch to the next part of our conversation and ask you about your community involvement. Is there a nonprofit organization you are passionate about? Which one?
0: Yeah, this goes back to my surfing days. There is a nonprofit called Surfrider Foundation, which is focused on climate change and keeping the beaches and ocean clean. Growing up on an island and, and being someone who has spent an immense amount of time in the ocean, it's something that is near and dear to my heart. i participated in a lot of beach cleanups and try to be thoughtful around how we're interacting with the ocean and the climate in general.
1: this is great. Thank you very much for sharing your nuggets of wisdom, specific examples of your engagement with founders and how you are involved actively in community development. I appreciate your time here on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks, Gopi. Really appreciate it.